on um, the stories and or preface, prefaces and forwards. Um, and our speaker tonight is Sheila. Thank you, Sheila. Take it away. Thank you. And it's the prefaces, the forwards and stories I was told, correct? So I had talked yes. about Dr. Bob's story. Have I got that correct? Yes, that's right. Great, good. Okay, and I've been having some problem with my internet. I will keep a uh, video live as long as I can. And uh, Hugh, the barking, growling dog that started right as soon as we started recording. So I'll do my best to try and keep him corralled. And as I said, I will stay on camera as long as I can. And the only reason I would cut video is just to make sure we have a stronger audio signal. So I'm very, very grateful to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. And I always love um, an opportunity to, to wax poetic about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, particularly intrigued by the, the topic of the preface and the forewords, and then uh, was talking about stories. And I remember I, I talked about Dr. Bob's story when I was asked to do this. And, um, and the reason I think it's especially important and, and kudos to you that you actually are, uh, are paying attention to the preface and the forewords. There are plenty of big book studies that I go into and they, they, they don't even come near those. They just start with the um, with doctor's opinion and go from there. And I think you're really missing out on something. I think we're really missing out on something when we don't pay attention to it. And there's just not enough time with, with 20 minutes. So I'm going to just kind of tell you the, the highlight, the thing that I make sure that my sponsees are very, very clear about when we're, when we're talking about the big book and the importance of what it is we do here, both in terms of reading the book and how we show up in program and how we embody the program. And um, if you go to in the preface, so this is in a, a fourth edition, it's uh, Roman numeral page 11 in the preface. And in there, it tells you how many books were in circulation um, at the time, before they made the transition, right? So when they would bring out a new edition of the book, they got clear about how many books were out there, right? How many, how many books were out there? And then when you go into the, to the forwards, you can actually find out how many people were in Alcoholics Anonymous at the time. So you can actually see how this went in terms of the ratio from the number of books to the number of, of alcoholics in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when it started out, right? So the first edition of the book came out, 39. And then the uh, uh, next edition of the book came out in 75. So there, at, at the time, there were, there were 300,000 copies of the book out right? So that first edition, it got up to 300,000 and there were estimated to be 150,000 alcoholics, right? So there were double the number of books versus the number of alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous. The next run, which was from 55 to 76, that was the golden age of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Because those numbers were so closely aligned. You had 1.15 and change, uh, number of books that were out there in 76, right? So at that point, in the, from the first edition and the second edition, again, we had 
1.15 million books out there. And it was estimated that there were a million alcoholics. So that's pretty powerful. That, that was very clear then that Alcoholics Anonymous really had something to say and it worked. So it's wild then what happened between 76 and 2001. That's when the third edition of the book came out. And um, there were 19.5 million books and there were only 2 million alcoholics. So something happened between 1976 and going forward to 2001, like what happened? From? Why did, why were there so many books? 10 times the number of books versus the number of alcoholics. When we had just come off a period where it was the parody was almost even, right? The number of books corresponded to the number of alcoholics. What happened? And I remember I had a sponsor who used to encourage me to think about that and take responsibility for that. And her, her theory was that it had to do with two things. The, the, the popularity of speakers meetings how speakers meetings just went through the roof, right? As we got into the 70s and 80s, Alcoholics Anonymous became somewhat more personality driven. And because of that, there was a greater and greater break of traditions. My, my thing is I lean toward the break of the traditions. And um, I, I'm not, I, you know, I, I like the occasional speakers meetings. I don't I don't go to a lot of speakers meetings. I'll lead a speakers meeting if I'm asked to do something, uh, if I'm asked to do so, but then I'm always just bringing people back to the literature, back to the literature and to um, what I'm gonna be talking about when I talk about Dr. Bob's story. But, um, but for the most part, my, my meetings are uh, book studies and you know discussions, but I especially love book studies. But I think it's just really important to think about that because we will, all bets are off now. We will, we'll never have any more data that we can ever call than what we've got here from the first, second, and the third edition, because the big book is online now. So all bets are off. We, we, we do not know how, how much of that book is circulating out there versus the number of alcoholics. So again, it's really important to pay attention to that. But I, 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 I'm, I'm so intrigued by that middle portion when the number of books, again, between 55 and 76, when the number of books was largely almost even with the number of alcoholics that were sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. So it just, it's just food for thought, right? Just reminds me to stay cognizant and, and uh, clear about how important and powerful the traditions are. And, um, and, uh, you know, I'm from Los Angeles and the, the, I'm not from here originally, I'm from the Midwest, I'm a Midwestern girl, but the, um, the number of times that traditions are broken um, and people outing themselves is, especially in, in press, is just really disheartening to me. It is, it's very unsettling. And um, I'm also not somebody, I don't even, um, you know, we all are clear that, you know, press, radio, film, and social media, right, um, is 
not a place where we want to be touting our sobriety or, or clean time or, you know, holding up our coins on our Facebook page or anything like that. Um, but also, so for me, I don't ever out myself and I make sure my sponsees are very clear, very clear about that. But also I tell them, even within the fellowship, so let me just look here. So I see, you know, uh, let's let's say Wendy and I are buddies, right? Wendy S. and I are buddies. And let's say we then go out to, uh, you know, we go out to lunch and Stephanie S. comes by the table, right? And because I don't know if Wendy S. and Stephanie S. know each other, I will under no circumstances, when Stephanie comes by the table, and again, I'm sorry, and I'm embarrassed about this dog. I don't know what to tell you. You can imagine, you know, how painful it is for me on this end, right? With the yapping dog like this. But, um, but because I don't know whether these two women know each other, when Stephanie comes by, under no circumstances would I say, hey, Stephanie, come on, you know, it's nice to see you. This is my friend, Wendy. She's in no way, she's in no way, right? Like, you know, I don't even do that. I don't even break anonymity within the fellowship. I don't do that. And I've had plenty of sponsors who have done that. And it's never my job, never my job to educate or school my sponsors. But I've had sponsors and, you know, they'll say, oh, do you know, you know, this musician or this person? Yeah, they're an AA. I mean, I just, or OA, I just keep, I, I just keep my mouth shut, right? I practice my Al-Anon program, right? And I, quite frankly, I don't know how anybody works any 12-step program without Al-Anon. But um, um, I just keep my mouth shut. But I don't, I, I just keep, that's been a really good spiritual exercise for me because I came from an alcoholic family and it, it came so naturally to me as it came naturally to my mother and her mother before her. So we had kind of a generation of women who were affected by alcoholism and the acidic tongue that came with it, right? Because I've had such a struggle to learn how to keep my mouth shut and not say hurtful things. I mean, I said, you know, something hurtful. I was just making an amends to my husband before I jumped on the meeting here. So I, you know, I said something, I mean, it's not kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of drama I've, I've done in, in the past, but still, I, you know, I said something hurtful because I always was clear how naturally and easily that came to me. I took it as a really good spiritual exercise to just keep my mouth shut about anybody in program to anybody else. Now, let's say that, that um, I'm, going to be getting together with, with Wendy. And I know that Stephanie works at that restaurant. What I might say to Wendy is, um, if I were to, to run into somebody from program, are you comfortable if I let them know that you're in OA? And if she says yes, then I would have already been in touch with Stephanie having the same conversation. And if Stephanie says yes, right, then when Stephanie comes by the table, maybe she's the chef at the restaurant, right? She's coming by the table. Then I can introduce those two women as members of the fellowship. But otherwise, I just don't do it. I, I want to be vigilant about this because of that information that I get from the preface and the forewords. Because what happened between 76 and 2001? that we had 20 million books out there, almost 19.5 million books and 2 million alcoholics. What happened? What's going on with those 18 million other books? People are reading those books and what are they doing with those books, right? So I, I wanna be vigilant about that. So that's, that's information that's really important to me. And again, so kudos to you for paying attention to the, the preface and the forwards because not everybody does.
And then in terms of the, the stories, the one that I wanted to talk about, because this just means so much to me. And again, perhaps it's because I am a, you know, a Midwestern girl and my whole 12-step journey started in Michigan, right? So we were largely influenced by the Alcoholics Anonymous of, of uh, uh, Bob Smith from Ohio, right? And so I started in Al-Anon. I was there for about a year and realized I should probably start paying attention to my own drinking. So I went into Alcoholics Anonymous, got clean and sober. Three months later, I turned to somebody next to me and I said, do you think you can have a problem with sugar? Like we have a problem with alcohol? And she said, absolutely, go to Overeaters Anonymous. So that was how it all started for me. And sugar has always been my thing, right? I always say, if you were to line up uh, a bottle of tequila, a joint, a carton of Marlboro Greens, a line of cocaine, or a hot fudge sundae, I'd run to the hot fudge sundae. I still would. There's just no contest. Sugar has always been my thing. I have a, a molar and just about, I mean, a filling just about every molar in my mouth. It was always my thing. But even when, my, and my top weight's 200 pounds and I weigh about 125, somewhere between 125 and 130. I don't have a scale in my house. I only weigh myself when I'm at the doctor's office. Last time it was like 127, I guess, a couple of, couple of weeks ago. But even when I was so overweight and eating god-awful amounts of sugar, weight and sugar was not my problem. It's never been my problem. I, I, even when I had a weight problem, I didn't have a weight problem. Even when I had a sugar problem, I didn't have a sugar problem. I had a heart problem. I've always had a heart problem. I've always had a heart problem. That's been my issue from when I came in and to a much lesser extent, but still now I don't love easily and I don't forgive easily. Those are my issues, period. They just are. So since that's, I know that this isn't about weight and it's about the wonderful transformation through working the steps, right? I come to meetings. I'm going to feel better. If I work the steps, I'm going to get better. And through that process of getting better is there's a transformation on the inside and then it can't help but show up on my body. But that's not, that's not the, that's not the real problem. The real problem is my heart again. And if I'd solved that heart problem, I wouldn't have needed to make an amends to my husband half an hour ago because I would have thought to myself, oh, that's hurtful. Don't say that. You know, you don't want to do that. But as I get reminded by sponsors over and over again, and as I get reminded in Dr. Bob's story, this is a program about community. And it's a program about realizing the toxicity of perfectionism. One of my sponsors always says she doesn't think Overeaters Anonymous has anything to do with food. It's about the disease of perfectionism. And that makes, that makes sense to me. For me, I, I, and I, I certainly concur with that, but it's also about the disease of communication. How effectively I'm communicating, or more often than not, because I still find myself intimacy challenged, because that first and third word of the first step, the most important words here, we, right, we admitted we were powerless. Because that's still a challenge for me, and intimacy is still an issue for me, spiritual, physical, emotional, and intimacy in my body of affairs, still a challenge. Because that's still the case, I know that I'll be here for the rest of my life. 
and I'll be addressing that part of it, that very, very important part of it. And it's no accident, right, that Bill was sober for six months. And again, I'm not telling you guys anything because you guys have an effective, this badass, you know, big book study that goes on here. But so I'm just kind of throwing it out, though, that, you know, I know, you know, right, Bill was sober for six months, but didn't count his sobriety date until June 10th, 35, the day of Bill's, uh, I mean, Bob's last drink, right? He woke up that morning, he had a surgery to do, and his hand was shaking so much that Bill gave him a beer so that his hands could steady enough to do the surgery. And that was the birth of our society. And right there, right there, it actually just cuts perfectionism off at the knees. Because I don't know about any of you, but, but from when I was very young, because I started having a problem with sugar from when I was very young, I would always, and this was, you know, I'm 58 years old. So, you know, I, I mean, you guys are young whippersnappers, many of you, but, you know, you used to call time, right? And you would call, I remember, and I would call, be calling time, and it was this uh, mechanical robotic voice, and it would say the time, and it would say, you know, it's 11.59 and 30 seconds, right? And I would have Five to minutes. make sure, thank you so much, I would have to make sure that I had called before midnight, because apparently Cinderella slipper, right, was glass slipper was turning into a, a clog at midnight. And if I did, then I hadn't done it perfectly and it didn't matter. But I love the idea that that Bob's first day of sobriety and the, the, the our fellowship's birthday is on the day when Bob had his last drink. It wasn't like his first completely sober day, right? But he had one beer. Like, I just, I love that. I love when, when things that have given me real trouble in my life, things like perfectionism and going it alone. I love those when those things just get jettisoned out of the, out of the picture. I love it. And as we're, we're taking a peek and, and, and I, you know, it was all I could do not to, you know, not to dive into the, you know, Dr. Bob and the good old timers, but you know, this is, this is a big book study. So I kept myself in Bob's story, but if you've not read, you know, pass it on or Dr. Bob and the good old timers, you know, don't, don't miss out on that conference approved literature, but let's just look at a few things here. And I'll tell you, so anytime that, that, um, that, that uh, sponsees are um, reading the stories, right. I always have them identify five different points in the story. And then we'll take a look at where I've, where I've seen these show up in, in, um, Bob's story, right? In Dr. Bob's nightmare. So in the story, I want them to do, the first thing I want them to do, number one is where the person thinks they have a problem, where they think they've got a problem. That's number one. Number two, I want them to find where the person knows they've got a problem. Doesn't mean they're necessarily going to act on it. I mean, if you do this with Bill's story, Bill knew he had a problem way, 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 way back, you know, years before, you know, he, he was, he was in town's hospital for that third time. So he, he it, it's, it's wild that he knew he had a problem and he, and he still kept, he was such a fierce independent. He was just adamant about doing it alone and that he, he knew that if he just kept at it, he would you know, find his way around this. He tells a story in um, Pass It On about um, 
uh, how he wanted to, his, his grandfather was teaching him um, about boomerangs and Bill wanted to make a boomerang. And he worked on it for like a year and he would, you know, get, you know, carve it and get it out and throw it and it didn't come back. And, and he's, and he talked about how amazing it felt when he finally, after a year and he, you know, as, as he's been tinkering with this thing and he throws it and it comes back. And that was the feeling that he was trying to capture. And he knew that if he just kept at it long enough, he'd be able to find his way around, you know, the, the, you know, the alcoholism, but he couldn't. All right. So where the person thinks they have a problem and where they know they have a problem. And then number three, thank you so much. Number three is where they surrender, where they surrender. And the fourth part I want them to identify is where the, where the, the writer of the story took a, a third step because the surrender is different than taking the third step. And then the fifth thing I want them to identify is where the person had a vital spiritual experience. So as we're looking in Bob, in Dr. Bob's nightmare, it's on page 173, right at the bottom. This was number one in my mind. Again, this is not brain surgery, right? And these are things that could be dialogued and fun. This is, you know, be a fun thing to, to do a meeting about, right? But um, number one in my mind is this went from bad to worse until sophomore spring when after a prolonged period of drinking, I made up my mind that I could not complete my course. So I packed my grip and went south to spend a month on a large farm owned by a friend of mine, right? So he made up his mind he couldn't complete his course. So he's kind of getting the sense that he's got a problem. He's kind of getting it. Number two, where he knows he's got a problem in my mind at the bottom of 174. By this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically and in hope of relief, voluntary voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. I was between Skilla and Charybdis. Um, so that's number two, right? Where he knows he's got a problem. For me, number three is on page 179. And this is when um, uh, he gets dragged to Bill's house on, on Mother's Day. Uh, well, it's the day before the Mother's Day and he gets dragged over there. And um, and he says to his wife, yeah, I'll go, he said, but, you know, uh, we're not going to stay over 15 minutes. And they ended up staying, right? He, he ended up staying for over six hours. So that's number three, right? That's where he, he uh, uh, surrenders. Number four, where he takes a third step, in my mind, is on page 180. The question might naturally come into your mind would be, what did the man do or say that was different from what others had done or said? And obviously the man he's referencing is Bill. It must be remembered that I'd read a great deal and talked to everyone who knew or thought they knew anything about the subject of alcoholism. But here was a man who'd experienced many years of frightful drinking, right? And uh, who'd been cured by the very means I'd been trying to employ, that is to say the spiritual approach. So that for me is where he takes a third step. And the fifth, right, where he has that spiritual awakening it's a most wonderful blessing at the bottom of that page 180. It's a most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. My health is good and I've regained my self-respect and the respect of my colleagues. My home life is ideal and my business is as good as can be expected. I spend a great deal of time passing on what I learned to others who want and need it badly. I do it for four reasons. Sense of duty, it's a pleasure. In doing so, I'm paying my debt to the man who gave it to me because every time I do it, I take one more a uh, little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. So uh, that's what I've got for you tonight. We've got to be getting close to the end here. So thank that's you very time. much. It's great to be here. It's been an honor and a privilege. My name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive overeater here in Los Angeles. Thank you. I'll put my information in the chat. Thank you so much for sharing, Sheila. 
All right, we will now open the meeting for questions or for three-minute chairs. As uh, as this is a big book study, sharing, our, sharing and questions should relate specifically to the chapter and step being studied this week. We ask you to accept this guideline in order to keep the meeting on track. If you'd like to share or ask a question, please raise your virtual hand, which is under reactions, or press start nine if you are on the phone and the Zoom host will call the raise hand in order and ask you to unmute when it's your turn. Would the timekeeper please set a timer for three minutes for each chair and announce when time is up? So you can go ahead and uh, raise your virtual hand if you have uh, a question or if you'd like to share. First, we'll have Amy B. And then Hi. Julie. Thank you, Stephanie. And thank you, Roberto, for your service tonight. And thank you very, very much, Sheila, for that wonderful, wonderful, passionate um, talk about the big book and Dr. Bob's story. I actually would like to ask you a question. I don't know if it's entirely on topic, but you talked about how you work with sponsees um, and asking them questions in Dr. Bob's story. When you start working um, with someone that you're taking through the big book for the first time. Do you start at the doctor's opinion? Um, do you go chapter by chapter or are you trying to get to there's a solution sooner or get into the action steps? I'm just curious. Um, obviously, we love studying the big book. When you're starting with somebody, do you study page by page, line by line, or are you trying to get them through the steps and you become a big book scholar later on? Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's no scholar. There's no scholar sitting in this chair, right? I haven't gotten it. I'm getting it, but I've gotten it. And that's a good thing. But um, no, I, and I sponsor exclusively from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the AA 12 and 12 is wonderful. The OA workbook is incredible. I've done that, that workbook, right? Because whatever my sponsor directs me to do, the only correct answer to a you know sponsor is yes. So I've done that three or four times, right? And those workbooks, and I just do whatever anybody asks me. But for me, in terms of sponsoring people, is um, I sponsor from the big book, and I sponsor Chronic Slippers exclusively. Not because I have a, I have the idea that I'm doing anything that Brenda can't do, or or Leslie can't do, or Dawn can't do. It's not about that. I don't have a messianic complex, but I do have my ash. I do have my experience, strength, and hope as a slipper. And um, I, you know, I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for. No, yeah, 30, 33 years, I guess. And I only have 21 years of absence. So I was a slipper for a dozen years. So um, I lean in with that and, uh, and uh, take somebody through steps in the big book doesn't take a long time. And if somebody's, you know, only been banging their head against the wall for five years, that's a that's a short amount of time. Um, you know, by the time they find their way to me. Um, usually it's, you know, 10, 15, 20, you know, there's a woman who's, you know, had been trying to get absent for like, she's got, you know, she's been in here for 42 years. She's finally got it, you know, another year and a half now here, but she used to come to me about every, you know, 16, 18 months and ask me to sponsor and we'd get going. And then she'd cut and run at some point and, you know, bless her, change my, me, not my business, but, um, but I always just sponsor from the book. And again, it doesn't take a long time. Maybe it takes three to six months, depending on what kind of material somebody's got on a four step, because that's going to let us know what, what kind of work we got to do on an, on an, you know, ninth step. But um, I always start somebody with reading, working with others. I always, because again, most of the people, have, you know, they've, they've been here for a long time and they're just not prepared for that. They're not prepared for somebody to start them on the step 12 chapter. But um, 
um, I have somebody read that chapter and I say, pay special attention to uh, page 96, right? And I always ask them to highlight and annotate at least one thing on every single page because the research is out there. I'm an academic at heart and they've uh, determined that when you highlight and annotate, you retain more material. So um, I say, and go back to, you know, so highlight and annotate at least one thing on every single page. And I give them a day to do this, right? Because we're going to, we're going to clip through and move with real alacrity because it'll serve you because it gives you time to turn this off. So this can get turned off. So you can get greater access to this and just be in that action phase. But um, I say, go back to page 96 and read that paragraph at the top of page 96 Highlight and annotate again one more time, anything you might find in that paragraph and then write for 15 minutes. And that's the paragraph. And this is what's so cool, right? This is why it's so great to not consider oneself, in my mind anyway, to consider oneself a big book scholar because you know this landed for me about three, four years ago. Again, I've been sober for 34 years and this just landed for me. And it was when I was taking somebody, of course, through the steps in the book. And it's the, you know, the paragraph is do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once, search out another alcoholic and try again, you are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. Here's the, here's the sentence. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. Right. And then there's more to the paragraph, but just in the interest of time, I'm going to stop there and I'll let you look up that paragraph, right, for yourself. But usually what the, the, the sponsee will write about is they'll, they'll, they'll come down hard on themselves. They'll pile on and say, oh, yeah, no, if I don't do it, you know, you're going to let me go and you need to let me go because that's what it's telling you to do. And I say, well, actually, what I was more interested in is how it says we find it a waste of time to try and help a man who cannot or will not work with you. It doesn't say who cannot or will not get sober. It says who cannot or will not work with you. So what I was kind of hoping you were going to get, sponsee of mine, is just for you to know that I don't have the power to get you to stop eating. I believe the A, B, and C we read at the end of how it works. A, that we are alcoholic and cannot manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, that God couldn't would if he were sought. So because I believe that, I know I can't get you abstinent, but what I want you to understand, especially in that you've been banging your head against the wall for years here, you're powerless over food, but you're not powerless over taking the actions. I'm not powerless as a compulsive overeater. I'm not powerless over getting to a minimum of three meetings a week. And I'm not powerless over, since I'm going to be in those three meetings, I might as well have commitments at those meetings. I'm not powerless over making three outreach calls on a daily basis. So see, there's a whole host of actions I want to introduce to somebody who's been trying to get what it is they're trying to get here. That if you want to be abstinent and you're not, you're probably going to have to do something that up to this point you haven't been doing because this is an action-driven program. It's a behavioral program and a cognitive program, but it starts with the behavioral component. And the behavior, since we are powerless over food and can't control that part of the behavior, you got to pay attention to where you can control things. And I can control things in terms of those tools and working those tools on a daily basis. So that's a long answer to that question. It that's was, but it was really, really good. Thank you so <laughs> much for it. Mm. Jody F., thank you guys so much. Hi, I'm Jody F. Compulsive Overeater. Thanks. Grateful to be here. Um, just grateful for your share tonight. Um, 
I had never heard the the five questions about taking someone through the personal stories. Uh, I even wrote them down. I actually have a pen and paper because when I listen to speakers, I forget by the end, like things that they said. And I like to write them down, you know, take notes to stuff I resonated with. Um, I too have a heart problem, not just a sugar and food problem. And I did have a question. Uh, there was I, maybe a, a question or just can you elaborate on the, you had said the 20 million people, I forget the years it was, um, there are not 20 million people, there were 20 million copies of the big book versus 2 million people in AA. And I, I think maybe I just got confused on, or if I didn't hear you right, or did I hear you right about is how's that breaking tradition? I didn't get the quite the math, like that there's a discrepancy that there, I know there's way more books compared to members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm just curious, like what, maybe what you meant on that or just talk, speak on it maybe a little bit more. I don't know if that sure. makes sense. So, sure. No, it does, Jody. So again, if we go to Roman numeral page 11, right? So it's XI. And this is the fourth edition of the book, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. The first edition appeared in April 39. In the following 16 years, more than 300,000 copies went into circulation. So that means when the new edition of the book came out, right, and that next edition came out in 55, that means there were 300,000 books that were out there. And what they estimated, and we learn in the first, in the second forward, is that there were... Um, uh, no, in the first forward, we learned that there were 300,000 um, alcoholics, right here. Wait, let me go back to the thing here, make sure I'm doing this right. I want to make sure I get this right. Yeah, that there were 300,000 books out there, and no, 150,000 alcoholics. So by the end of, of uh, 55, there were estimated to be 150,000 alcoholics. So there were double the number of books. So let's say that there were 300,000 books and 150,000 people really resonated with it and said, yeah, I belong here. This is my thing. Well, the next time it happened, right, between 55 and 76, you had 1.15 million alcoholics. And what it tells us in the preface is um, that's what it says, right, that we had 1.15 million books out there, but we had a million alcoholics. So people were reading the book and they were like, I belong here. This is cool. That means it felt it was a safe place. It was a safe place to admit you were powerless over alcohol and to just hang out here. That to me suggests 12 steps. So the 12 steps are working well. You have people who are sponsoring and, and sponsoring. I know in Los Angeles, you came to Los, uh, in the beginning, and especially, and this was prevalent in Los Angeles, you, you came in and you were, you were assigned a sponsor and you were issued a big book, right? So they just took it very, very seriously. Well, what happened between 76 and 2001 that all of a sudden you have almost 20 million books out there, but 18 million of the people who bought those books decided, no, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. And you only ended up with 2 million members. I'm just intrigued. And I don't know what it is. And I bet again, I mean, there's a doctoral thesis there for sure. I'm sure somebody's done it or, you know, would want to do it. It's, it's great. It would be a great thing to contemplate. I mean, you couldn't publish it with your name on it, right? At least your last name. But, um, but that's really intriguing to me. Like what happened that 18 million people got their hands on that book? And again, what I just said that what my sponsor had theorized that this had to do with the uh, uh, breaking of traditions and um, 
but in her mind, she, she was just never a fan of uh, speaker meetings. And she was head of one of the big treatment centers in Southern California. So she just was all, you know, she just knew the fallacy of personality and celebrity and, you know, how that's just a bunch of nonsense, right? It, it doesn't have anything to do with staying sober and it's not going to help you stay sober. And you can have all the secret meetings you want and, you know, the meetings that are just for pilots and, you know, just for this and just for, you can do all that stuff all you want. It's all, you know, it's all the same. It's all the same thing. So at any rate, that was where that figured in, in terms of, you know, what, why did 18 million people buy the book and decide that they didn't want to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous? Where did it not become safe? And I think in many ways, in many ways, the, the, the traditions get broken so often. I remember driving home from, I was leading, I led a meeting at a treatment center in Malibu, one of those mucky muck ones, right? People are spaying, you know, paying a hundred thousand dollars a month, ride horses and get up at, you know, 12 noon if you want and start going to the meetings and stuff, completely different from the real treatment centers that mean real business. But um, I had to pull over. I was just losing it as I was driving PCH home uh, because somebody, a woman who had written a book um, about the serenity prayer and she outs herself on NPR uh, as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she'd written this book. And the host, who either I don't know if he, you know, is a member of the fellowship, but he certainly knew about it. And he said, "I thought you guys didn't um, share your break your anonymity at, at the uh, level of press, radio, and film." And she said, "Well," and here it was. Here was the the, the toxic thing that will be the downfall of any and all of us. She said, "Well, I decided." that it didn't apply to me and it just didn't make sense. And I thought that I probably had a good and a, a good reason. And I just thought, I, I, like I said, I had to pull over. I was just seething. I was seething. It's all I could do not to pick up the phone and just unload on her. And, um, and anyway, so, so that's, that's what it is. We just want to pay attention historically, because again, it, we, we will never be able to measure this ever again because it's out there. It's out there on the internet now. So we don't know. But we know the last time it didn't look good. There were a lot more books out there than there were people staying sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. And we all have a responsibility to make sure that as much as possible moves in the other direction. In my mind, anyway. Thank you. We're going to stop the recording before we go on.